Hi everyone, welcome to our second episode of Parental Advisory. I hope you're ready to get right into it because here we go. As some of you know, my mother was paralyzed when she was in college, several years before having my sibling and me. Today, we're going to dive right into the life-defining story of my mother's accident. What happened, what she learned, and some intergenerational lessons that came from it. I will warn you now, you might need a tissue. I certainly did. Here it is. Hi, Mom. Hi, G. How are you? I am good. It's a beautiful morning here in Las Vegas. But it usually is sunny and warm. It's in the like low 70s. So it's a dream. Amazing. That's so lovely. It's pretty nice here too. So after the last episode aired, our first episode, I got a lot of feedback of people really being curious about your story, wanting to hear more of your story. And of course, I I created this podcast and I'm catering it to mostly like people who already know me pretty well. (laughs) Um, And there are definitely several of my friends who are very close with you, um, who have gotten closer over the years because you've become mom to all, (laughs) all the little queer outcasts out there. Um, But for a broader audience, I think, I mean, and for myself, again, I really just want to, I want to keep and hold on to and cherish your story. And I think there's a lot of lessons to it that, that I learn every time I hear your story and it's a big one and it's a long one. So I think that, um, I think we should, yeah, we should start with one of the most, um, pivotal and poignant moments in your life, which is your accident. Yeah. You You had this, this really big, really traumatizing event happen to you that, changed the way that the world perceives you and the way that you navigate the world and you were so young and and I want to hear it so um I guess let's like set the stage um like how old were you what were you doing and I guess what happened okay so um I had just turned 20 uh it was the month after my 20th birthday and I was a student at the University of Michigan and I was home for summer break. Uh, so it's the middle of July was when it happened in 1982. Woo, there's a time travel for you. Um, so I was riding my bike to a swim class because I was going to get in shape. And so I wasn't going to drive. I was going to ride my bike and get extra exercise. And that was obviously a really bad. So you know what? If you're taking an exercise class, just drive. It's fine. Um, and so anti-biking ad. <laughs> anti-biking. Get ironic. Yeah, get off your workout equipment and get in a car. Just be safe. Um, so I and and so I was riding my bike to the exercise class. Did not make it. I was. Uh, going through an intersection at a light and the person was turning right on red and ran into me. It wasn't looking for me, was looking, was not looking where they were going, was looking for other cars, but was then accelerating. And that is a mistake that drivers make all the time. I've done it 
so many times. I am so thankful that I never have hit anybody because that would be incredibly traumatizing. Um, so we're, it just, it was an accident. None of it was on purpose. Nobody was out to get me. Uh, that's a really good feeling. I don't know how people would live with, you know, having an intentional thing done to them. That's really very, very shattering. Um, and so I was hit, knocked down, went between the front wheels and was run over by one of the rear wheels. And so had had cool tire tread bruises, apparently, that I never got to see, but my family told me about them. I was like, why didn't you take a picture? That's amazing. They didn't think that was a good suggestion. Um, and so I never passed out. Um, I, I was, I was rolling, right. You know, and so I kind of came to a stop in the middle of the intersection. And, um, so my brother is a, was a firefighter. He's retired now, but he had all, he had been working doing EMT work as a firefighter at that point in my life and had told lots of stories about people and their injuries and things like that. And I realized that I could not feel my legs and I was like, okay, well that's done. So I kind of figured out on the spot that was not, that's where I was, that I was not going to get up and walk away from this. And um, because that's how my brain works. And so I was trying to yell. I mean, I had really, you know, it was over my midsection, so I really didn't have any wind. And it just seemed like people came really fast, like neighbors came and, and um, the police got there pretty fast and then the ambulance. And um, so they figured out pretty fast what had happened to me. I was really, really lucky. I had, um, for all you nurses and medical folk out there, I had a, a T1112 injury where those two vertebrae were crushed basically. They, and so when they were crushed, my spinal cord was crushed and severed. So that's the level of my injury. It's about at my waist. It's kind of behind my belly button. Um, and so what they had to, they had to do a surgery and put in some rods so that the, the spine could heal again and the, let the, the vertebrae heal. So they took a little bone off of my hip and made a bone spur to, uh, solidify my spine between those vertebrae and um, put the rods in, uh, which they're still in. I didn't realize you could get them taken out. Nobody tells you these things. And so they're still in. When weather changes, I feel that. And, um, and yeah, that was, so I was um, basically um, a complete injury for all, all for your medical folks, uh, that means that I lost both um, motor function and sensation. Some people only lose motor function and they still keep the sensation. That's called being spared. That's what the term is, um, which is not as good as you would think mm. because then everything hurts more. But then you also know if like you're getting a, a pressure sore or you've burned yourself or whatever. 
So there's good things. So listen to your body. Another lesson I learned really fast. If your body's telling you something, listen. I mean, it's it's (laughs) unbelievable to just um, to imagine being in that position. What was going through your head when that happened? Like when, because you never passed out, you never fainted or nothing. So you were conscious for all of this. Like what was going through your head? I can remember thinking when I was in the ambulance that, well, you don't get run over and live. You know, like, I must be going to die. I must be going to die. And just this whole big no was in my brain when I was thinking that. So it was like warring parts of my brain. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a time in my life when I believed that that was God telling me that that no, mm-hmm. you're not going to die. Um, I don't know. Maybe. Could be. Don't know. Not sure about that whole higher power thing. Um, basically yeah. living my life like this is all I get. So whether there's a higher power or not, I'm still living my life like this is all I get. So do the best I can with it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember hearing that story um, when I was a kid, when we were still going to church, (laughs) when that was still the higher power. Yeah. Yeah. How did that, how did that affect you? Um, well, I mean, the higher power thing. I mean, yeah, this idea that, oh my gosh, God talked to my mom. Yeah. I mean, you hear stories like that and. I guess, yeah, my, my experience with religion and, and like belief in God changed so much over the years, especially like middle school and high school, it started deteriorating as I started understanding, as I started asking questions, because that was the thing that you, that I'm so grateful that you encouraged in, in my brother and I. Um, so yeah, the, the, like God talked to my mom thing was really strong for a while. And then as I started asking more questions about life and spirituality then it then it also did shift it was like that could have been anything like your psyche and your spirit is so big and so powerful that we do all sorts of things whether it come from like channeling an energy or channeling a life force or a god or whatever you want to believe like i don't really it doesn't matter a ton to me if it's personified or if it's just energy or if it's all in our heads <clears throat> the job gets done and you needed to hear that no to move forward because that I can't imagine hearing that no and then having your body not react to that no right you know right. and your your body was like okay <clears throat> I'm gonna fight I have yeah, to fight yeah. yeah so I I distinctly remember that story and <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm glad that you I'm glad that you fought for whatever reason you heard that and you fought and it also just makes sense because of who you are. <laughs> um So so yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's my understanding of it. So okay, what happened next? So you were in the hospital. What was like r- rehab like? Where where were you at in your life when this rehab was taking place? Like can you tell me about this aftermath and the healing and the trauma and the coping? Absolutely. Um, there, 
so I was in the hospital for about four months. So the, um, the accident was the middle of July. I basically was discharged right at Halloween. Ooh. So <laughs> I know spooky. Um, Very and, nice in wheelchair. Oh yeah. That's what I'm going as this year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was not good. Um, Ghost at of least legs. <laughs> at least I had the body cast jacket thing off at that point. Um, so I was for the first part of it. So I had I had to wait like a week for surgery. They had to do surgery to kind of to put the rods in and stabilize me, and that was really painful. That work that week in ICU was. Ex- I mean, the the level of pain is just like off the charts. I've done, you know, I've given birth and done all kinds of crazy things. Nothing was like that pain. Like if somebody like back then, the little basins that they had for you to barf in were metal. So if somebody hit a metal thing against something else metal, I could feel like shooting pains from the sound, just the, the, the vibration of the metal against metal would cause me pain. That's how much pain I was in. When you break your back, man, that hurts. (laughs) So I was really lucky because I didn't really break anything else. Like I had, I broke some ribs and I broke my collarbone and I had no internal injuries. I mean, a, a heating and cooling van ran me over and I had no internal injuries. So whoever designed this, this body, did a really good job because the rib cage and everything protected me. I'm shocked still. Yeah. It's, it's mind blowing. I was so incredibly lucky in how I came out of it. It could have been way, way, way worse. I mean, that would make me believe in God too, probably. (laughs) Well, I didn't know that at the time, but I mean, wow. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, usually like you lose a spleen or something goes wrong, you know? And I, so I just focused on that, the, the healing of the bones and everything was really what I had to work on. And so, and then of course in rehab, it's just like an intense learning of your body, how you are going to do things as you move forward in your life. You know, how do you reach things? How do you cook? How do you clean? How do you take care of yourself? How do you, the, the biggest, all you worry about for three months is peeing and pooping. Like that's literally, you have to learn to do that and you have to take medication to help you do that. And, and it's really a radical change for 20 year olds. And for me, um, this was at the old University of Michigan hospital and it was just a big ward and you didn't like have rooms, you had curtained sections and it was noisy and we all had like a, a shared area that we hung out in and everybody, most people were young. And mostly we're young men because those are the people who do risky things that get them a broken neck or a broken back. And they really did not adjust well. Like the women, there was like three women at, I was usually the only person, only woman identifying at, that was a spinal cord injury patient. It was all male. And there were a lot of food trays being thrown and tantrums and swearing. And because these guys' physicality was everything to them. Mm. And 
that was, you know, they were mechanics or, you know, whatever, and they're athletes. And that was the focus of their being. And they had no identity outside of that. You know, and I definitely struggled with, you know, who I am. I'm, I, I would look in the mirror and I wouldn't recognize myself because, you know, just the, just the changes that were going through my body. And I can't even imagine how profound it was for them. And so for them to act out is, makes perfect sense. It was a little crazy for me. I was like, whoa, I'm just going to go in my little curtain area. Leave me alone. Bye-bye. Yeah. 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 So, um, and I would go, I would, as we got closer to my discharge date, um, I could go home on the weekends Hmm. to be at my mother's house, which was not accessible at all. (laughs) Steps in, bathroom they had to take the bathroom door off the hinges so I could go to the bathroom while I was visiting. But my friends would take me to concerts and we would do fun things. And it was so good to be out. And I know I looked like a freak because I still had a body jacket on because I had to be stable and, you know, had the hospital wheelchair. I mean, I looked you were like going a out. freak, but I was going to the concerts, man. I'm 20. Oh, my God. Yeah. So we would find clothes that I could like put over the body jacket so that it would at least take away from it. Just oversized shirt. <laughs> it was rough. But, you know, um, I had really good people. I had a really good team. And they said, yeah, you're going out. Damn it. You team know, like rehab folks, people who are no, team like Aunt Jan and Auntie mm-hmm. Matt, mm-hmm. who were like, yeah, I'm going to come and learn how to help transfer you. And I'm going to come and learn how to take care of you so that we can get you the heck out of here. And that's what they did. And they busted me out as soon as they could. Yeah, you really do. And did have a really strong group of yep. women friends. Yep. Yep. And they kept me going. And so, um, Never underestimate the power of your people. Mm. Yeah. So taught, that taught me a lot. I still learn from that story. There's, um, there's so much to remember and to be grateful for and to pay back. And so that is, that will never end what I received because it literally saved my life and Mm -hmm. whatever I can do and share with people and be with people, I'm going to do that. Because once again, it goes back to my God thing, right? All I can do is what I can do while I'm here. I can't count on having a second act. So we got to do it. Maybe it wasn't God then, because God's always trying to tell you there's another act. <laughs> He's like, no, but die later and I'll see you in heaven. It's fine. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't die now. Die later. Yeah. Yeah. Bring people to heaven. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm curious to hear more about, I mean, I'm sure we could sit here for hours and talk about the lessons that you keep learning from that, but did something pop into your mind as you were saying like, Oh, I keep, I keep going back to this and learning lessons from this. Like, has that happened recently for you or. Um, I don't know specifically about recently, but when I tell the story, you know, I, 
you know, obviously I'm much older now and I've actually raised people past that age. And, you know, when you're a parent, you see the world again through your kids' eyes and I remember you when you were 20 freaking out, like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to me this year? You know? That was the year I started bike commuting. <laughs> yeah. Thank, thanks, G. That was really, that was really comforting to me. Um, I it was the same year. And then I was like, oh God, why did I buy this bicycle? And you had some mishaps on that bicycle too. Yeah, um, definitely. But uh, so just, just retelling that story and thinking about what it can mean for folks to think about what if something gigantic happened to you? Who are your people? Mm-hmm. Who can you count on? Um, can you, and, and I think probably one of the most profound lessons I learned was allowing people to help me. Mm. And that took a long time. I mean, I was raised by a very proud person who wanted to do everything on their own and valued that independence and valued that um, I do things myself. And really both of my parents were like that. And so I was very independent. I mean, I was, I considered myself kind of a loner and I do things on my own and I'm happiest in my own company. And to be so broken down that I literally told my sister, I said, without you, I'm just a body in a bed. Oh. And that was truly the way I felt. Oh, my And to understand the gift of letting people in and letting people do things for you and with you when you are that low, it is a profound thing when you feel like you have nothing to offer because, oh, everybody's got to take care of me. Letting somebody take care of you is huge. It is a huge gift and it is a hard gift to give. And so when you are helping a friend or when you are, you have somebody in your life who's low and you reach out and help them realize how hard it is for them to let you do that. Yeah. That's everything they can do at that time. And when they do it, even, even if it's even a little bit gracious, but it might come with a tray being thrown. Yeah. It's all they have. And and be as gracious and as gentle as you can as you give. Don't don't be oh well, I I guess I'll have to do that for you or oh, let me help you. You know, don't be pitiful, don't be pitying and don't be cocky. Just Be human with them. It's such a beautiful exchange, that humanity, that I see you where you are, and I am grateful for sharing this with you. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. Wow. I think (laughs) (laughs) I'm crying over here. (laughs) 
I guess that's how I got to that, that my, my philosophy of life. People are like, well, what, what are we here for? I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know why I'm on earth. You're on earth to be with other people. We are communal creatures and which is so ironic, which me working remotely now. <laughs> <laughs> we're all so lonely. We are all so lonely because, and the reason we're lonely is because we're supposed to be with other people. It's not natural. <laughs> it, I mean, and that's the irony of being a human being, right? Is that we are programmed to be with other people and yet we can only ever be in our own skin. Yeah. We are individual and communal at the same time. Yeah. And that's the, that's the struggle forever. <laughs> it's really hard. It's really hard. To let the pendulum swing and try and find a, a, a way to be independent, like you were saying, and also let people help you and love you. And it's, it's like a specific type of pain to hear you tell the story again, because <laughs> I learn something new from it every time too. And, and we can go into the psychology of how all of this affected your kids too. And Colin and I, my brother and I laugh all the time because we both have this weird, um, like subconscious, or maybe it's just how we were designed because of you, our reaction to what happened to you of like really high pain tolerance like both of us have this laugh my my chiropractor laughed in my face <laughs> like that's not good they're like you can't feel this like, the, like almost troubling to the point where you're you're like concerned for us um but it also runs into an emotional spectrum too where i have this really high pain tolerance emotionally i have super deep threshold to hold things and that's the thing is like pain tolerance is healthy until it's not. Yes. And I think that part of my reaction to what happened to you and growing up around your, your life and your reaction to what happened to you, I got, I got like three quarters of the lesson and I didn't get the complete lesson of, of it's really, it's been so hard for me to open up, especially over the last year with the pandemic allowing for people to care for me and love me has been so much harder than loving and caring for other people because yeah. that's what I was set out to do. I felt, I feel so much joy in, in, in assisting people and supporting people and loving people and finding ways to, to make my people's dreams come true. I love finding where I can fit into the puzzle and, and, Cause I have all these assets. I'm like, yeah, you know, I can help you write that. I can help you get there. I know someone who can do that, you know, connect, connecting people. It feels really good. And then I realized time and time again, <laughs> it's gotta go both ways. And I am one person that cannot be helped. And I think I get that from you <laughs> in a sense, but it's like, you know, hearing you say this again and hearing how important it is and hearing how painful it is to allow for people to help you when you are down and when you are feeling weak. Like my voice is cracking right now. I've been talking about it because I'm going through it right now. And I've been going through it for the last several months. And you're right. But that's where the real vulnerability lies for me. Because yeah. that's when you're weak, you know, like if someone needs help, I'm like, hell yeah, because I admire their vulnerability and I'm drawn to it. And I'm so impressed and proud and inspired 
but it, you can be impressed and proud and inspired all day, but that you have to find a way to be vulnerable yourself. And it's really, really hard. And I'm realizing more and more the older I get, how hard it is and how much I cherish those moments when I can be open with the people I call my dear friends. So. Yep. You have to, empathy. Empathy for others does not preclude empathy for yourself. No. And if you, if you're only, if it's only going outward, you're going to run dry. So you gotta open yourself to receive. So maybe that's the biggest takeaway from my, my trauma Mm -hmm. um, is to be able to, to receive yeah. It's an important skill and it's a skill. It's a skill. It's so hard. And it's a skill we don't practice. So we don't get good at it. Like we only do it in times of desperation. Well, that just brought me to thinking about all the people you were in the hospital with these like men who could not receive because like that, that's the society we live in. We live in a society that, first of all, deems hetero cis white men as the goal, whatever gender, whatever anything you are, like that's the perfect person. That's like the goal. That's the American dream is to be a hetero white cis male. And then, and of course, in the way that things are set up. You, there's no room to receive because you have to give and give and give. The American dream is work hard, work really, really, really hard, and then you'll get what you want and give and give and give. And like, you know, more hours out of the day, you're just working and you're not giving yourself any sort of attention and any sort of pleasure and any sort of love and like letting people get close to you and being vulnerable and like sitting with the risk of vulnerability because that is, it's risky because you share yourself and you open up and there's a risk of rejection or pain. And then there's the risk of all the beautiful things too, that we forget about when we're (laughs) preparing to open our hearts. So big lessons. Okay. Small lesson. We need to have tissues handy when we do these. Dripping boogers. Not great. This is going to, I mean, it's happened last time too. <laughs> My tears. Wait, that's what a t-shirt's for. I forgot. Oh. Yeah. Wipe it okay. Off. There we go. Little puddle. It's fine. <laughs> um, I think this is probably going to be a theme for this podcast. Uh, just a fair warning for anyone listening. Um, it's a, it's, it's a, it, we're going to rank this one at, at two tissues. Yeah. <laughs> Which is good because I don't know if I had access to these tears when I was younger in a lot of ways. We're tough guys, you and I. We are. We're tough guys. We're like tender on the, we seem tender and we're like, yeah, like I'm, I'm sweet. I'm nice. Core but of iron. The giant brick wall around my heart. I swear to God. Yep. <laughs> Anyone who's close to me understands this. It's That's not true. supposed to be there and I don't want it there, but it's there. It's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You got to chip away at it. There's got to be a door. Got to crack yeah. open something. And the people close to me know that it's, unfortunately, they are burdened with the responsibility of helping me with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not burdened with that responsibility. They're blessed with that responsibility. Oh, hell yeah. And, and that's an opportunity for them to grow. 
by helping you. And so when you let them take their chisel to that brick around your heart, you're helping them. Mm -hmm. You can't, none of us can learn and grow unless somebody else lets us learn and grow with them. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I like teaching because when you're learning, if you're in that learning zone, you're, you're cracked open at least a little bit and something's getting in and out and being there for that things getting in and out is magical. And I always learn when I teach, I always do. And it's, it's kind of this, it's kind of that, that muscle being used. That's so true. Yeah. That's so true. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of it is a balance of, of, um, cause I think of when I, when I'm, I'm open. And when I'm needing, I, you know, I feel a lot of us feeling like we're taking up too much space and that we're being burdensome. And of course there are lines where, you know, when you're flailing out, it's only so only, there's only so much capacity that any one person has to, to show up for you. And I think that that's where the, that's where the fear comes. I think, I think in a lot of us, I'm too much. And that's, and it's, it's a legitimate fear, of course, because it also shows the lesson of the people around you saying, you know, I'm here for you and I'm going to find a way to, to help you. And that also means that I'm challenged with being here for me too and finding ways to set boundaries with my own self. You know, I'm sure your sister had to do that too of, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to make sure you go out and I'm going to make sure that I know exactly how I need to assist you. And I'm sure she had her own ways of setting her boundaries with herself and making sure she was good. And I'm sure that, you know, I would assume that happens a lot with, with your sibling. Well, that's not her best thing. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say she'll, she'll sleep extra, but that's not happening. She never sleeps. She sleeps plenty. It's just during the day for some reason. It's not at night. Why does she text me at four in the morning? (laughs) (laughs) It's like every time I talk to her. Yes. But we all come from that core of, I don't need your help. But I do. But I do. I do. So I want to also get into... Just back, back, so we can stop crying for a sec. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about and ask you about the experience of um, not being born with a disability, but having it happen to you later on, and especially at such a poignant time in your life, being 20 years old. Like, this, that's a huge shift. You're coming into adulthood, but you've already had 20 years of, of being an able-bodied person. I'm curious to hear your perspective on that and how that's, how that's changed for you. And well, I think that, um, of course, I don't know what it's like to be born with a disability. So I can't really, um, give a comparative kind of a statement. I know that, um, you know, it takes a long time for you, for me. And I think for most people to get used to the idea of, you know, like, like you walk in your dreams for a long time, you know, and I still, I, even when I'm dreaming, it's like, that's not like my accessibility needs and my dreams are not necessarily realistic. You know, it's like, I'll be doing something and I'll realize, oh, I can't go there. Oh, there's a step, you know, (laughs) in my dreams. Um, So that, um, that's, 
understanding that and having that being a profound part of who you are takes a lot of time. That's a big adjustment. Um, so seeing myself and picturing myself um, as a person who uses a wheelchair is um, that's still evolving because like a lot of the things, and, and then you get into whole body image, right? Body image in a wheelchair it doesn't matter what your body looks like. If you're in a wheelchair, that kind of overwhelms anything. But then there is expectations of what people look like in wheelchairs. And um, I was blessed with fat legs. And yeah, well, I mean, I just, uh, yeah, I have big thighs, man. That was just, that's just the situation. And the thing is, is that when people see somebody in a wheelchair, m many, many wheelchair bound people, and they're wheelchair bound, they're people who use wheelchairs and who um, rely on wheelchairs uh, pretty exclusively for their um, mobility. They are, your, your muscles break down and they, basically disappear. And so the size of your legs becomes very small. Mm. And so a majority of people that I know who use wheelchairs have small, skinny little legs. And so wheelchairs are designed for that. Wheelchairs are not designed for my body. Mm. And so people look at me and they don't see what they might see with other people who use wheelchairs. And they think it's temporary because of the way my body looks. And I will, I've literally had arguments with strangers where they'll say, oh, well, how long are you in that for? And I'm like, forever. Oh, no, 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 you'll be fine. <laughs> and I'm like, literally, I don't even know your name. What are you doing? Why are you having this conversation with me? And they will argue with me about my disability and that I will be getting up soon. Right, and you're at the fucking grocery store. And I'm at the grocery store or a national park or just out living my damn life. I and yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's crazy. The, the, the fact that people feel like that person right there, I'm going to tell them what's wrong with them. And I'm going to tell them that they don't know anything about what's wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And- and, and, okay, strangers are crazy. You know, people are crazy. They get these ideas, you know. Oh, I broke my leg once, so I know what you're going through. Please don't. You know what? If you've ever been tempted to say something like that to somebody who uses a mobility device, just don't. Because mm -hmm. you know what? Your experience is not a bond between you and that person. It's just not. Just, no. just don't even, it's a bad place to go. I will also tell you that medical personnel, personnel will definitely tell you that they will gaslight the crap out of you and right. tell you that um, you don't know what your own condition is and you don't know what you can and cannot do. They will, they will tell you that I've, I've been, I mean, when I was still inpatient for my four months of rehab, before I got on the rehab unit, I had a nurse tell me to get up and go to the bathroom. Oh, wow. And I'm like, and I wasn't even sitting up at that point. Like I was in a body jacket, cast, it's like a body cast, basically. I literally, they hadn't sat me up yet. 
And she told me to get up and go to the bathroom. And I'm like, I cannot do that. Did you read my chart? Like I'm falling back on the chart, you know? Oh, that doesn't matter. Just get up. And it's like, (laughs) oh my God, why do I have to explain this to you? That's ridiculous. Um, Climbing onto an examination table from wheelchair level, eight months pregnant. And then them saying, gosh, your blood pressure's high. Well, I just climbed a fucking mountain with a baby in my womb. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, no. Yeah. So I started, you know, after, after a couple of decades, I started drawing lines and saying, they would, they would say, okay, can you get over here and do this? I'm like, no, no, I can't. Oh, well, maybe I'm like, no, I can't do that. And just, and you know, my no is a very hard no. And I love it. People don't tend to argue with my no, which is a gift. Thank you. One of my favorite things about you and our lineage. Our, our matriarch of, of hard nose is, is hard. No. And it's beautiful. And it's, it's nice to have that in my arsenal to mm-hmm. be able to say a hard no. Thank you. And for have that. people, people not argue with that. No, like, you know, and you've seen, and you've seen me do it because you've seen people grab my chair oh my God. and try to push me to help me and random ass people, just random ass people just people that have never met me before. And I just grab those wheels and I just tighten up as hard as I can. No, no. And um, goes, there's a lesson in boundaries. And it's really, you know, so now I'm, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving contradictory advice, right? Let people help you, but you still have to have boundaries. Exactly. They don't necessarily get to pick how to help you because their choice of how they want to help you may not be helpful. You don't have to accept that. Yes. Right. And I know that there's people in your audience, G, that have people in their lives that are going to help them with a situation that the person being helped is like, that's not a problem. Why are you helping me with something that isn't a problem? Mm-hmm. Right? And maybe it's part of their identity that someone sees as a, as a problem that they're going to help with. And that's not a problem. Okay? Right. Just like somebody else pushing my chair. That's not a problem I'm having. So don't help me with that. There may be another area in my life where I could use some help. But I get to decide that. Yeah. On your own terms. Yeah. So you get, remember folks, you have the right to decide Mm -hmm. when something is a problem for you and then realize that it is a good thing to get that help and to get that support. And that's another skill. Like all of these things, I'm thinking of myself in every position we're talking about. Being the help, being someone needing the help everywhere in between and how I've made mistakes in every role. I've made these mistakes in every role, trying to find ways to help that are not, it's not my choice. It's not my choice. And it is not my problem. It's not my choice. And it's not helpful. And 
and see and and like that's the thing is it, it is a skill to to try and figure out okay how can you help me okay you want you clearly want to help first of all do I need help right now yes or no second of all what would it look like for you to help me that's hard to identify sometimes because like you said earlier we don't live in a world where accepting help is a thing we don't do that and so then we don't really necessarily have the muscles and the skills to to identify our own needs i half of my time i have no idea well i mean i can say this now i i have an idea but it it's taken such a long time of practicing okay what do i need like having self check-ins regularly is it doesn't it doesn't come naturally right away it is a natural thing but we have to unlearn all these all these rules yeah that we've had to take on of of identifying what we need and what our boundaries are and sometimes that's the help you can offer is to just help somebody figure out what they need help with yeah to, to just bring a genuine curiosity and a safe space for people to just bounce their ideas off of mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily feel like helping but it is you're being there for them and you're making that space for them. And sometimes inside your own head, you can't figure it out. Right. You just need to put some ideas out there. And if you have somebody who cares about you and is non-judgmental and can just be that sounding board, oh my gosh, that's probably the hugest help any of us could ever do. But that also takes practice. Yeah. Vulnerability. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like um my a couple of my closest people and I work on that. Yeah. Okay, let's let's figure it out together. What do you yeah. think? What yeah. do you think? What do you think you might need right now? Okay, this. Okay, well, no, maybe that didn't work out. Like you'll we'll try things and then maybe it'll be good and maybe it won't be good. And then you move forward and it's good and you're safe and it's yeah. <laughs> huge. Huge. Yep. I love that. Um <laughs> That's a lot. I think that's a lot for today. Yeah. <laughs> I've cried twice, so I'm feeling good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my sinuses are feeling so much better now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's such a it's such an intense story and there's so much that branches off of it. And it's every time we talk about it, we get into something else every time. And I have so many more questions and I, I want to ask more about um, later on, more about like your upbringing and your family life and and how your accident and how your family life and all these things affected the way that you chose to parent. Because I think a lot of a lot of what I'm seeking and our audience might be seeking is like, okay, we need to find a way. <laughs> you're kick-ass and we've found out we've found ways to connect over things that usually parents and kids can't connect over which is like sex work um and and having and being an outcast those are usually things that like different generations struggle with yeah being a boomer you know we we need to get into some some ways to to crack the code on the on the boomer millennial relationship we got to crack that and we got to get into your we got to dig into your childhood for it so oh, that's yeah. going to be a fun one. We're going to get into that next time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I love you so much. Thank you for sharing your story again. I love you too. I'm glad that you want to share it. 
I appreciate the opportunity and um, just letting people know that you and I are both, we're there, we're there for folks. So but let us know. Terms. <laughs> yeah. On your terms. Figuring yes. it out as we go. We're all figuring it out as we go. Yep. All right. I love you. I love you too. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. I really don't think that conversation needs much more of a wrap up. I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to learn and be challenged by life's curveballs. From the story of my mother's survival to just sitting here right in front of a microphone confessing to you just how hard it is for me to be so open. I'm so grateful for your attention and I can already feel this podcast working some magic on me and my willingness to be vulnerable which is a huge challenge in this highly independent, tough matriarchy I come from. Thank you for being here. And if you like what you hear, please pass it on. We don't have a website, but we will alert you if and when things change. But for now, you can follow me on Instagram at queef underscore station. And for those of you who have never had to spell out the word queef, it is Q-U-E-E-F. And follow my mom at Mama McKay. M-A-M-A-M-C-A. The music is brought to you by Legwork and the rest from me, Geo. Until next time, uh, bye-bye. <laughs>